Well, good morning again. If you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to Philippians in the New Testament, chapter 3. It's page 831 in our church Bibles, page 831, Philippians chapter 3. And in just a moment or two, we're going to begin reading in verse 1. Um, while you're turning there, let me just say a couple of things. In just about two or three weeks, we're going to begin working verse by verse through the Old Testament book of Daniel. Now, most of you know that we just finished up last week, actually, 1 Corinthians um, in its entirety. So, uh, Lord willing, we're going to begin Daniel in just a few weeks. We have a few sermons in between. And if you're new, typically what we do is week by week, we take a book of the Bible and work through it verse by verse. We feel like that's the best and safest way to get the truest meaning of the text, God's Word. So this morning, however, we're in chapter 3 of Philippians. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Finally, my brothers, sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. And it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, who, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider lost for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word and may God grant us understanding of it. Let's bow. Please together as we pray and seek the help that we need. What can wash away our sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make us whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes us white as snow. No other fount I know. No, nothing but the blood of Jesus. But as we ran our hell-bound race, Indifferent to the cost, you, God, you looked upon our helpless state and you, you led us to the cross and we beheld your love displayed. You suffered in our place. You bore the wrath reserved for us. Now all we know is grace. Hallelujah, all we have is Christ. Hallelujah, Jesus is our life. Father, please show us Christ. Reveal your glory through the preaching of your word until every heart confesses that Jesus is not only Savior, but he is Lord. To the praise of your glory. Amen. Who is this man, Jesus? Who is this man who would live on this earth with one aim in mind? I must get to the cross 
and die. I mean, who thinks this way? Who thinks that the aim of their life is their death? We would understand the aim of life is, is life, but we wouldn't understand the aim of my life is death. Who is this man? Jesus Christ. Clearly, Paul, the, the writer here, as most of you know, he is intoxicated by this Christ. Ten times Christ's name is given in these verses. So for Paul, Jesus can't be like an add-on to Paul's life. Uh, it appears that Jesus is Paul's life. So he can't be thought of to Paul as a pagan god who are no gods at all, but still that, okay, we know how it goes. If, if we do enough and, and uh, give enough and we put enough on the altar, then this god will do our bidding for us. So that's not the case here. And clearly, this is not a superstition. This is not an irrational belief for Paul, right? A kind of, well, you better walk the thin line. And if we don't fall off and we do certain things in a certain way, superstition, irrational belief, then things will be swell. That can't be Paul's Jesus. I mean, Paul's Jesus, as Paul will tell us in Romans 7 and 8, uh, this is the kind of Jesus who you can say uh, face to face, oh, wretched man that I am, who's going to rescue me from all my sins? And of course, Paul says, thank you, God, through Jesus Christ. Okay, so then who then is Jesus? Who is it that sits down at the right hand of God? Who went to the cross? Who, who is it that was buried and raised again? Who is it that upholds everything by the word of his power? Who is he? Now, loved ones, I begin this way because it's clearly evident as we, as we read it, as we listen it to these verses being read, to understand what the fundamental nature of Christianity is and what it is not has to center on the person of Jesus. That Christianity is about a person. One person. This is our concern this morning. What, what is Christianity? Well, it's about one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And my goal is to show us how or, or, or why the essence of Christianity is about the Lord Jesus Christ. How Jesus is a righteousness from God. So we got three points. Typical. What Christianity, what it is not, what it is, and what will happen when we become Christians. First of all then, what Christianity is not? Well, certainly Christianity is not a creed. Christianity is not merely a summary of beliefs. We have beliefs in Christianity, and they're very important to believe. However, it's perfectly possible to believe in the creeds, to believe in the, uh, in the teachings of the Bible and God, and yet still not be a Christian. That's what James reminds us, chapter 2, verse uh, 19. The kingdom of evil believes in the creeds. They believe in God. So to only believe puts us on par with, with demons. Christianity is not a creed. Christianity is not a conduct. Right? We understand there's, there's conduct in Christianity. But, but you can be upright and you can be well behaved and you can be decent in the way you live. But there are many humanists who want to live a righteous and upright enough life. And some of them, at least outwardly, they're far better but frankly, I am at doing that. Christianity is not a creed. It's not a conduct. It's not merely ceremonial. Now, we know Christianity has ceremonies and it has services, which are commanded. And they're very important that we tend to. Because Jesus was the one who started these things. And Jesus was the one who commanded these things. And Jesus is the one who, who um, actually exercised these things. He practiced them. And so, the church of Jesus Christ has practiced these things ever since. 
But again, it's perfectly possible to be religious and to be ceremonial and yet still not be a Christian. To go through all the paces, religion, read your Bible, say your prayers, come to church, get baptized, take communion, and so on. And yet still not be a genuine Christian. And finally, Christianity is not being a conservative. So that you are conservative in your approach to everything and you believe in self-determination and personal responsibility and you have to make your own way and moderation and everything and so on. But you have to understand that being conservative is not the same as being Christian. Conservatism is an ideology. It's not a theology. Therefore, loved ones, not only is the essence of Christianity not any of these four things, it's not all of these four things Put together. And so it becomes quite possible, though rare, but it's still possible to be orthodox in belief, to be careful in your conduct, to be consistent in attendance, conservative in nature, and still miss the essence of what it means to be Christian. And if you doubt this, well, let me remind those of you who know this man, and and for those of you who don't, this might be the first time you've heard this, that there was a famous hymn writer, uh, John Wesley, who was actually a preacher as well. John Wesley, Charles Wesley. We sing a lot of the songs that they um, wrote here at West Cohasset. And John Wesley lived in Oxford, England in the 18th century, and he went to university there. And while attending Oxford with his brother Charles and a few other friends, they formed a a parachurch organization which came to be known as the Holy Club. And the name was actually a name given by the other students. It was kind of like slang, like you holy guys. And so they determined to keep the name. Holy Club. Now, to begin with, these young men were very orthodox in their belief. They were committed to the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed. Uh, They were committed, as best they understood, to the teachings of the Bible. They were also very upright young men. They were full of good works. So, not only did they meet every night, and they laid down a detailed plan of how they would spend every hour of their day in good works, planning out those good works, they would also spend time revising their plan, making it as efficient as possible so that each hour... And each minute of every day would be mapped out all for good works. So they founded a school in the poor section of Oxford. They fed the children there. They paid a teacher to teach there out of their own pocket. And they routinely visited prisons in Oxford as well. Full of good works. They, they also were very religious. They observed at that time the hours of prayer prescribed by the Anglican Church. I'm pretty sure it's seven times through the day uh, that you had to stop and pray. They did that. They fasted every Wednesday and they fasted every Friday. They worshipped Jesus on Saturday and Sunday to cover both bases. And Holy Communion was part and parcel of their weekly worship. So these guys are wonderful. They were orthodox. They were upright. They were religious. But listen carefully. According to John Wesley's own words, one of the founders of the Holy Club, He wasn't, at that time, in those practices, he wasn't a Christian at all. He wasn't converted. How do we know this? Well, he wrote a letter to his mother, a famous letter, in which he said, and this is what he said, in those days in Oxford, in the Holy Club, it may have been the religion of slaves, but it certainly wasn't the religion of sons. In other words, by his own account, despite all that uh, religious activity, he was not free from his sins. He was still dead in them. He was not a child of God and he had no peace. He was just a good man doing everything he could to be righteous before God. 
The story continues, still dead in his sins, unwilling to understand this or unable to understand this. Wesley crosses the Atlantic as a missionary because that always helps, right? So he arrives in America, Georgia to be exact. He served as a chaplain there and a missionary to the Indians in in Georgia. And again, because oftentimes people do that. They, They feel like they don't have connection here with Christianity and they say, well, I know, I'll go do something good. I'll go on a trip. That's what Wesley did, a mission trip. He stuck with it for two years. He returns home, a depressed and disillusioned man, and he would write in his journal on the ship home one of the saddest sentences I think that have ever, has ever been penned. Listen to what he said. I went to America to convert the Indians, but oh, who will convert me? He goes on. What have I discovered of myself while I've been away? What I least expected. That I who went to America to convert others was myself never converted to God. Okay, we're going to get back to Wesley in just a few minutes. But let me just say this as we move along because it needs to be said. Can you imagine um, as a parent, if you received a pamphlet in the mail from the likes of a holy club and it says if you're indeed, if you're teen really wants to get serious with Jesus and wants to do something with their life, then come on and join the Holy Club. You know, just look at us. We are all over the place. We're feeding people, fasting ourselves. We're doing all kinds of good works. All the while, maybe to some, maybe to some, giving the impression, you know, you overfed, overplayed Americans. You're just sitting there in your local church, barely doing a thing. You sing, you pray, you worship, you listen to sermons, you do some good works, but nothing on the level of the Holy Club. So if, if, if you are a serious Christian, then come on and join the Holy Club. We're serious. All the while, as in the case of Wesley, the club, and some of the guys in the club, religious, but not Christian. But not Christian. And I have been in pastoral ministry long enough to know how some poor, well-meaning parent with a rambunctious teen, they can't figure out. Or just a person who's lost and afraid and they don't have a grasp of the gospel says, yes, that's what I need. I need the Holy Club. That's what I need. You see, this is what Christianity is not. Well, then what is Christianity? Because how is it you can be upright and you can be orthodox and you can be committed and you can be active and conservative and attend services and all that and still not be a Christian? What is the essence of Christianity? That's our second well, in a point. Well, in a word, the essence of Christianity is Christ. It's Christ. Christianity is about a person and not a system. Christianity has a creed. We understand that it has conduct. Yes, it does. And ceremony and so on. But it isn't those things that saves. It's a person and a personal relationship to that person. And without that person and a personal relationship with that person, everything else, verse 9b, if your Bible's open, everything else is rubbish, is meaningless. For it is only after we truly know Christ that the creeds and the conduct and the ceremony begin to find their rightful place and have meaning. I don't want to scare you here, but this comes from the Cambridge Essays on Christianity. Listen to what he said. All other religions are essentially a commitment to something, an ethic, an idea, a philosophy, something. But only Christianity is a commitment to someone. And you see, it's one of the telling signs 
of the genuineness of our relationship with Jesus Christ, that after we have sinned, and we will sin, after we have sinned, we do not run to try and offset our sin with a series, uh, series of good works. We don't try to offset our sin by turning up the intensity in our devotional life to, to feel forgiven or to feel peace. Or after we sin, we have no alarm, no dread, no sadness of heart that we actually did sin. You see, the telltale sign of the genuineness in our relationship is that we run to Jesus first and seek his forgiveness and his help and we are humbled by such grace that he can actually forgive me for the one billionth times billionth time in my sin. I said it before, I'll say it again. That's why Jesus is mentioned so much in these verses. Because it tells us that Paul... The converted Paul was captivated by Jesus Christ. Christ was at the very core of Paul's faith and his life. Listen again to the Bible, verses 8 and 9. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything. Panta is the Greek word. It means every material thing in the whole of the universe. Everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Now, if your Bible's open, no wonder he begins in verse 1, rejoice in the Lord. And then he writes it again, rejoice in the Lord. It's a safeguard for you. In other words, this defends you, right? In other words, this gospel, which is a righteousness from God and is by faith, that's verse 9, it defends you from you and your concoction of being right with God or feeling right with God by any other thing than the gospel. Now, it's important that you understand that. Paul says, what I'm going to say to you defends you from you. So it's reliable, it's safe, it's trustworthy, it's certain, it's sure. In essence, it is good news. And what do you usually do when you receive good news? We got good news last Saturday in the family. What did we do? Verse 1, we rejoice. We rejoice. So what is Christianity? In essence, it's a person. It's a person who protects, verse 1. It's also a person who provides. That's Verses 8 and 9. Well, what does he provide? Now, just listen carefully as I do my best to try to explain these two verses. If a person believes in God, most would believe that God is righteous or if you like that he's right. Right? So if one believes in God, she would believe God is righteous or right. If he weren't right, he wouldn't be God. So it stands to reason that if you're going to ever enter into the presence of this God, either in this life or the next, we have to be righteous as well. Because how can righteousness and unrighteousness agree? How can wrong and right dwell together and be in one accord in any lasting way? I mean, it can for a decade or two or even a century or two, but not forever. Subsequently, the question is, how can we gain a righteousness that will fit us into the very presence of God? And only two answers in the history of the world has ever been given. The first is this, I will make my own way and I will establish my own righteousness by my good works and by my benevolence and by my religious observance and prayers and commitment and so on. Therefore, I will seek to put together a cloak of my own creation, a cloak of my own righteousness, which will qualify me to stand before God as a righteous person. And of course, many people have tried that. Wesley tried that and people still do that today. But then you open your Bible and the Bible says things like, 
even our righteousness is as filthy rags. And then we try to be reasonable and we say to ourselves, all of us can do and think and say many horrible things in secret. And no one knows except the all-knowing God. And then what? So we can put on the here, but ultimately God knows all. Think of it this way. Let's say you've been keeping track of your money all week. At the end of the week, you, you expect to find a certain amount of money in your accounts. So you go at the end of the week, you log on to your account as most of us do. And what happens? You discover that you miscalculated and you find yourself much shorter in funds than you previously thought. And you see, that's the picture that you need. That's the picture that I need. Because on that great day, when we stand before God, if we've been running the numbers and trying to add up the good deeds and the good words and our terrific commitments we made and the comparisons we made with those people who we have imagined in our mind, like we are far more righteous than we are. That will all count for nothing. Because if there's any comparison to be made, it's between us and God, not us and others. But anyway, and if that happens, we will leave God's presence eternally disappointed and eternally condemned. Therefore, if we honestly think that we can enter to the presence of God in the raggedness of our own morality, we either have an inflated view of ourselves, arrogance, or an inadequate view of God. Ignorance are more than likely both. You see, those in history who had just even a glimpse of the glory and the holiness of God, they shrink away from that. That's Moses in the burning bush. He was afraid to look upon God. God's glory was too much. You see, this is why we must humble ourselves before God and before men and women, Christian or not, in these things. How can we gain a righteousness that will fit us to enter the presence of God? Man's first answer is a dud. It's a dud. Second answer is God's answer. This is the answer that Paul is giving here. Paul says, how can we gain a righteousness that fits us for the very presence of God? Well, it has to be received as a free gift through faith in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ came into this world, lived a life of perfection and love. He had no sins of his own. So he goes to the cross and he puts on our unrighteousness, making our sins his own, making our condemnation his own. He made our lies and our lust and our rage and our slander and our greed and selfishness. All those things, he made it his own. In our place, condemned, Christ stood. Bearing our sin in his own innocence. And when Jesus Christ cried on the cross, God, why have you left me? Right? Why have you left me? He was tasting the darkness of hell. And you see, that is the essence of the good news. That God would love us enough to enter hell in order that we might enter heaven. It's a hymn writer that has the line. I, I love this line. Oh, what love is this? See, he gets it. Oh, what's going on here? What love is this that pays so dearly that I, the guilty one, may go free? So if we come to Jesus Christ in great humility and honesty, we put our trust in him as a savior who died for us, then this wonderful, amazing exchange takes place. He takes away our sin and he gives us the spotless robe of his righteousness. So we don't have to trust in ourselves, but we trust in Jesus 
And then, listen carefully, then at every turn, we are accepted. We are forgiven. We are then adopted children of God. And we are set free from the fear of death. And those things come to us not by our personal performance, but only on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So on May 7, 24th, excuse me, 1738, John Wesley discovers this. He went to a church service. Can you imagine that? Someone actually getting converted in the church service. London, Altergate Street. And in the service, someone's reading a commentary, Luther's preface to Romans, in which Luther describes what I've been talking about. Having a righteousness, not of our own, but from Jesus Christ. Faith in Christ. Justification. Accepted always, at every point. Accepted always, before God, through faith in Christ. And nothing more. John Wesley was converted that night and he would write in his diary these famous words. Listen carefully. I found my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ and Christ only for salvation. And an assurance was given to me that my sins had been taken away, even mine. And he saved me from the law of sin and death. So listen carefully, especially if you're a parent. So the Reverend John Wesley, the holy man, the committed man, the kind of young man who who most parents would dream to have, but wasn't a Christian, finally became a Christian. Accepted, not by performance, but by faith. Accepted, heart strangely warmed. Sure, why not? Heart strangely warmed. Now, as you think about this, can you imagine if this relationship with God, a righteousness from God, so when God deals with us, he deals with us because of Jesus, accepted because of Jesus. Can you imagine if that kind of relationship could be passed down from husband to wife, wife to husband, parent to children, children to parent, church member to church member, that we accept one another, that we forgive one another, that we love one another, not on the basis of our performance or even our preference, but only on the basis of Christ's righteousness? Can you imagine what would happen? Okay, so someone might say, well, we know all this. Thank you. Okay, well, let me ask you this. How do you apply this? Because this should be basic. You see, this is why so much of the teaching ministry in the church is not novelty, but it's repetition. Indeed, it's a tyranny to the teacher if he thinks they have to keep coming up with new stuff. But you see, that's why Paul says what he says. You see that in verse 1? It's a safeguard to you for me to write the same thing to you. Because in everything, the basics of the gospel are vital. And especially in those times when sin seems to be reigning in our life. I mean, what do you do when you, you find out that something horrible has been done by you or your spouse or your kids, and they're all Christians. What do you do? What do you do? And excuse me for this. What do you do when you get on the computer and you don't like what you see on its history? And they're Christians. I recently learned that an American astronaut who was on the space station MIR, this was in 1998, MIR, M-I-R, when things went bad on MIR, And some of the vital functions of the station began to shut down and everybody's life was in danger. Listen to what he said. It was the things I learned in the seventh grade. 
when my teacher taught essential truths about pumps, which I remembered and which essentially saved my life. Now, the man has a size 14 brain. The man's a genius. But when he had to save his life, he reached back into something which was essential, which was basic, and was reinforced to him again and again. And lives were saved because of the basics. It's just like in a Christian marriage. Things won't always be pretty. So what happens when they're not pretty? Do you pick up your stuff and go? No, you reach back to the truth. You stood before God and you stood before men and women and each other. And you promised. You promised things. Okay, so now we know what the gospel is. It is a righteousness from God through faith in Jesus. In essence, it's Jesus. And we know what it isn't. It can't be anything that we can do or even fail to do. Now, the final point, what will happen when we become a Christian? Because I can guarantee you the answer is not nothing. Something will happen when we become a Christian, but it might not be what you think. You look at the text. One of the obvious things is the effect genuine Christianity will have on a person is the person will become captivated with Jesus Christ. I mean, is that not Paul here? This is some beautiful and heart-bending language. I was actually thinking about taking it, changing some of the words, and giving an anniversary card to my wife. I mean, this is beautiful stuff. Verse 10, I want to know Christ. I want to become like him in his death. I mean, who says that kind of stuff? Well, apparently Christians will. Christians will. And I think most of you know this. What's easier to do? Is it easier to do good works? Or is it easier to be captivated with the person of Jesus Christ? Tell me, what takes spiritual power? Because it doesn't take any spiritual power to do good works. We've learned that. We know that. But it does take a spiritual transformation to begin to speak and think of Jesus as your highest treasure. As your highest treasure. Verse 3. We glory in Christ. Glory means to boast often and proudly in this. Parents, we understand this with our kids. Grandparents, you know this. We can't shut up about him. Paul says, I can't shut up about Jesus. I can't stop thinking about him. And I can't stop speaking about him. And this will happen to us when we become a Christian. And I don't think I'm too far off when I say this. But I'm, my guess is that there's a lot of churches, and we'll call them conservative churches, below the Mason-Dixon line. On a normal Sunday morning in this point in history, you probably hear the name ISIS more than you hear the name Jesus. Verse 3b. What will happen to me? Well, I'll put no confidence in my flesh. The word for confidence actually means persuaded. In other words, I will not be persuaded by my flesh one way or the other. About my standing with God. So if I'm tracking like a holy man. And just getting everything right. Or if I'm failing like a holy mess. I will not be persuaded. In my standing with God. By those things. Why? Paul says it because I am found in Christ. And we're not dealing with my righteousness now before God. We're dealing with his righteousness. Now two things come to mind here. Number one. My enchantment with Jesus Christ will be the key to my personal growth as a Christian. And my love as a Christian. And good Christian fruit will be bore just like Paul. I mean, he loved Jesus deeply. And so he'd go all over the place for Jesus. Which makes me say the second thing. My 
captivation with Jesus will enhance my love and my relationship with everyone, good or bad, Christian or not. It doesn't matter. I mean, that's Paul. He went everywhere and took a lot of heat for Jesus because he loved people, 2 Corinthians 5, and he wanted them to know about him. Why? Because he glories in this Jesus. Finally, what will happen to me? Well, I glory in him and I put no confidence in me. I won't be persuaded by me whether I'm nailing it or not. Finally, verses 7 and 8, I consider everything a wash compared to Jesus. Nothing compares to you. That's Sinead O'Connor, right? Prince wrote that song, by the way. Paul would say to Jesus, nothing compares to you. It's good. That's a genuine conversion. That's real. Jesus, nothing compares to you. Okay, so let's just stop for a second. Because we have to be careful here. Because the... This kind of captivation, this kind of a romance, we'll say with Jesus, sometimes people can go, okay, then it's just me and Jesus. That's it. Me and Jesus got our own thing going. We don't need anybody to tell us what it's all about. So Jesus is just me and you. And that's not Christianity. Listen carefully. Where do you find Christ? I mean, the visible expression of Christ and the presence of Christ. Where do you find it? Here it is. You ready? You find him in the church. The body of Christ. You find them in each other because we are united in Christ. You find Jesus in preaching because we preach Christ. You find him in the Bible, which is a book about Christ, the essence of who he is and what he's done. You find Jesus in corporate prayer, which is mediated by Christ. And we're going to find him at the table, communion, which declares what? The death of Christ. Christ, 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 Christ. You see? This is wonderful. What will happen to me when I say yes to Jesus? Well, the gospel is going to put in me a longing for him. Not a longing for good works. Not a longing for all that silly stuff, but a longing for him. And once that happens, once I want to know Christ and glory in Christ and have a righteousness from Christ, be found in Christ and have his power in the resurrection. And this is a hard one for me to share in his sufferings. Once I know that, then I begin to see that I'm in Christ. Listen to J.I. Packer. Luther gazed at Christ's cross with steady joy and gloried in the fact that whoever trusts Christ can be assured of his love. He once wrote to a troubled friend, and this is one of my favorite quotes ever. Listen to what he said. This is Luther. Learn to know Christ and him crucified. Learn to sing to him and say, Lord Jesus, You are my righteousness, and I am your sin. You have taken upon yourself what is mine and given me what is yours. You have become what you were not, sin, so that I might become what I was not, righteous. Packer continues, there has been an exchange, a great and wonderful exchange, whereby the Son of God has taken all our guilt in order to set upon us all his righteousness. Have you ever loved someone so much that you just can't get them out of your mind? That's Paul with Jesus. How did it happen? Conversion. Conversion. Christianity. A righteousness 
from God. How could it be anything else? Let's pray together. Our gracious God and Father, we, well, sometimes when we hear the gospel, we really want to cry. It's just beautiful. We know what we are. We know what we do. We know that sometimes we are horrible. And maybe as we move along in years, we're really good at guarding our horribleness in the outside, but our hearts, they can be just flooded with so much wickedness and evil, and you know this. So where do we go? Where do we turn? Well, we go and we turn to the only provision you have made in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, may you be glorified in our lives today, this week, the coming weekend. For Jesus' sake, amen.